The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. My name is Ryan Jones. Um, I have the good fortune this morning to kick off our summer guest speaker sermon series entitled Practices of Love, Spiritual Disciplines for the Life of the World. Honestly, I don't know how I'm in this lineup. They listed it this morning. It's like six PhDs and me. (laughs) But I am very privileged uh, to get to share this with you this morning, so thank you so much for the opportunity. You might get the idea just from the title of the sermon series that we're making an effort here to reframe, to some extent, the idea of spiritual disciplines in our lives. We think about these very often as an individual exercise for spiritual growth, for my relationship with God, and for the life of the world implies that we're looking at this rather in a community context. So we're looking at... Um, How do we exercise uh, these spiritual disciplines in a way that carries um, the love of Christ to our neighbor? I really like the the topic here. So we're trying to gather some new perspective. We're trying to reframe the topic. And so in, in keeping with our grand tradition of pop culture references at the top of a sermon, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Stephen Strange. Yes, the Marvel superhero. Dr. Strange is a talented neurosurgeon, the most talented in the world. And day in and day out, he performs feats of healing that other surgeons wouldn't even attempt, much less succeed at. Now, he's an arrogant person. He's in this very much for his own glory, but the results speak for themselves. Uh, So he's accommodated in that way. Now, Dr. Strange has a tragedy of his own. He has a bad car accident, he loses the function in both of his hands, and even after extensive physical therapy, can't even write, much less uh, be able to continue his career. This sends him spiraling, of course, the tragic irony being that perhaps the only person in the world who could have saved him was himself. So this sends him searching. He's exploring every corner, asking everyone he knows, looking for similar stories of healing because he must get this ability back. And this leads him to a vaguely Buddhist-inspired temple halfway around the world where he encounters a character played by Tilda Swinton called the Ancient One, someone who understands these spiritual secrets of the universe and has been rumored to be able to heal somebody like this. And she immediately identifies that he, a Western medicine, talented doctor, person of science, is gonna have a hard time uh, accommodating what she has to tell him. And so here's a quote from her. You're a man who's looking at the world through a keyhole, and you spent your whole life trying to widen the keyhole to see more, to know more, and now on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility? And this culminates in an argument where he yells in her face, there's no such thing as spirit, and she karate punches him in the chest and proves to him as he's looking at his falling body suspended in time and space that there's more than meets the eye to his singular perspective. So we're looking this morning to widen our particular keyhole that we're using to look at the world, Um, and that's part of the reason why I love this whole concept. Jesus did this all the time. He was a master reframer of spiritual truths. And if we set aside for a moment the fact that knowing Jesus is knowing God, as he tells us in the book of John, if that's not paradigm shifting enough, Set that aside for a moment. In his practical teachings about the law, he did the exact same thing. And so I want to point out some passages from the Sermon on the Mount. Now remember that the people that Jesus is often arguing with, 
uh, in the context where we see him, these are not people who have a casual understanding or a general consensus about the point of the law that they're dealing with. They are people who have a carefully interpreted, over time, correct answer about the law that was handed directly to them from God to Moses. They know what they're talking about. And yet, Jesus is able time and time again to take what they are looking at in the three passages from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. I tell you, don't be angry without really good reason. You have heard it said, do not break an oath. I say simply, be honest. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And notice the way that he is stretching these. He's taking the law, the carefully interpreted right answer that his people know, and he's stretching them horizontally for the betterment of our neighbor, for the benefit of the world, to show love first to those around us. And that's as well what we're going to do this morning. Now, kicking off eight weeks on the spiritual disciplines, we have to spend a little bit of time talking about what they even are, a little bit about the original context. And when I first uh, began to look into the, the topic material for this, I started searching my mind for the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness like list from Bible school, and I was having a hard time with that. I kind of got to reading the Bible, praying, fasting, the one that we really don't do except whenever we're really feeling frisky, and <laughs> that was about it. And there's a good reason for that. There's no verse just handed to us in Scripture that says, here are the spiritual disciplines, here's how you follow them. They tend to be practices that we have good examples of or teaching about in Scripture, but there's no elevated list. So how did this come to us? If we trace it back about as far as we can, we get to the fourth century. So a couple hundred years, maybe, from the writing of the last New Testament book, So the echoes of Jesus' activity in the world are still reverberating very closely, so much closer than, um, you know, our experience uh, and the way that this tradition is handed down to us. But the roots of these are in monastic life. So a little bit about monastic life at the time. We think of monastic life as an escape, a religious experience where I'm going to get out of the world, remove myself, and go over here where I can be close to God. And that couldn't be further from what a fourth century monk is trying to do. What they are trying to do is take the words of Jesus seriously. Leave your father and mother and sister and brother and follow me. Create the kingdom of heaven. Your, your will be done, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. They're taking this very seriously, and they're not escaping, they're creating. They're trying to show the world what it can look like to live in Christ-centered community. So John Cassian, this fourth century monk, um, has traveled the world as far as it would be considered at his time, visited different monasteries, and he wrote a book called The Institutes that is his observations about life in a tight, uh, Christian, Christ-centered community. The things that don't work, that do not lead to life, that, you know, cause division among people, he called those vices. So that's a little bit of a loaded term for us, perhaps better translated today, malformed behaviors. And he also suggested that in bulk, we could renew and restore these behaviors by enacting 
the spiritual disciplines. So this is how we came up with the list. So there's two observations I want to make about the context um, of how these were kind of codified into a singular list of practices. And that is one, that they exist first and foremost in community, not on an individual basis. But also, second, they are a reaction to and an attempt to renew and restore malformed behaviors in our lives with other people. So community context, restoring malformed behaviors, um, that's going to be important to us. So in the end, these are practical behaviors for healthy community life, ways to attempt to live differently for the sake of one another. And here's the list that he proposed. Silence, solitude, fasting and feasting, Sabbath-keeping, meditation, and simplicity. And this morning, we're going to talk both about silence and meditation. I thought I was cheating by picking two, but the list I saw this morning, like half the speakers picked two, so I'm in, in good company. But that does mean I have to run through them fairly quickly. Silence. What does the spiritual discipline of silence look like? We might think of Elijah up on the side of the mountain, he's told that God is going to pass by, go out and seek him. He goes out on the mountainside and he sees a grand earthquake, he sees a roaring fire, he sees a rushing wind, and then in the stillness and the pure silence afterwards is where he encounters God. So we kind of picture our, our solitary selves quieting the voices of the rest of the world, getting away perhaps in combination with solitude and meditation and hearing the voice of the Lord. And that is a good, healthy practice. So I'm not maligning at all the way we typically uh, view these spiritual disciplines, but I would suggest that there's a little bit more to the story. I'd suggest that we move perhaps from Elijah on the mountainside to Jesus with the woman at the well. And so here's what I mean by that. Uh, when we look at a community context, what does silence look like? So I'm with another person, I'm practicing silence, what does that mean? So it's part of our communication. I speak, I shut up, I listen, normal back and forth. What does it look like to practice silence in that context? Well, let's look at the malformed behaviors that could exist and the way we communicate with others. One might just be uh, maligning others, negative talk, um, cutting others down instead of building them up. There are lots of verses uh, that talk about how we should use our mouths and the danger of, um, you know, speaking badly about others. So I'm gonna take that as read for a moment and talk about something uh, a little bit different. What's just the actual opposite of silence? Well, noise, talking, the sound of our own voice. So talkativeness was not a word that resonated with me as I first started reading through this. I, I would doubt that many of us uh, resonate with the idea that we are talkative to the point of it being a, uh, a vice, so to speak. Um, but there's another way of looking at it that I was able to resonate with, and that is the idea of uh, a verbal space between me and another person. Who is filling that verbal space? Have you found yourself being the first to jump in to a pause in a conversation? When you're working in a group setting, are your ideas the ones that um, tend to get put forward and pursued? Um, and here's one that, that resonated with me perhaps even more. Do you find yourself speaking with a tone of confidence that does not invite, or in fact, makes it very hard for somebody to express a different view or opinion? Are you stepping forward and filling that space in a way that somebody else might step back? 
there are lots of ways that that can express itself. Um, I thought perhaps a fitting example um, of this, you know, there's many in our, our body here who have been transparent about their struggles with mental health. Many of us who have walked alongside somebody with depression. So here's an example of, of how I think we might understand the usefulness of silence. Um, has anybody ever walked alongside someone with depression and found the secret words that you can say to snap them out of it? Not how it works, not even close. What can we do? You can be with someone, you can pick up and help with things, balls that are getting dropped just to help keep things stable. You can express love and support. Perhaps the last thing on the list is to jump in with our advice. That's a time that silence is the more appropriate response. That's true for people who are going through all kinds of uh, struggles, suffering. It's true in a lot of contexts. Sometimes silence is the way that we can love our neighbor. And the renewed version of that is that we are not assuming that our voice is the useful one at any given moment, but we are willing to listen. Now, this is balanced. This isn't vow of silence, I'm only going to listen, but this is balanced. Let's create space in this verbal space between us for our neighbor. So I'd like to reframe this kind of in Sermon on the Mount style. You have heard it said, practice silence to hear the voice of God. But I tell you, renew the way you talk to make space for the voice of others. So on to meditation then. What does it look like to practice meditation, the spiritual discipline? We might think of an example like Joshua, who after Moses passing, he's receiving his instructions, and what he is told is, do not let the law part from your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Or we have all of Psalm 119 to tell us, um, I have hidden the word of the Lord in my heart that I might not sin against you. We are substituting some of our attitudes, some of our predispositions, trying to set those aside, fill ourselves with scripture, fill ourselves with the voices of God. Again, a positive practice, something that's good to do. But let's think about this then in our community context. So what are the malformed behaviors? Well, what is meditation? If you get out your thesaurus, you're gonna see meditation kind of along with all the other words that mean thinking, calculation, dreaming, wondering, all slightly different. But meditation is a way of thinking. It's a practice of thinking to increase our awareness or try to see things from new perspectives. And what does that look like in community context? There's two malign behaviors um, that could exist in this space then. One, again, fairly obvious, malicious thinking. Thinking poorly, wishing harm on someone else. You guys have never done that, I'm sure. I actually had this whole exercise I wanted to do. I'm not gonna go there really, but I was gonna kind of play with asking, who do you hate? Of course, you guys are thinking no one because we're not supposed to hate people. Um, but then sit with that. Like, did a name come to mind, even though you don't hate them? Um, that's like extra credit. Explore that a little bit. Um, so I'm going to set that one aside then and talk about what is perhaps more insidious and less noticeable, and that is selfishness in our thinking. Just what's on my mind day to day? My wife, my kids, teaching them to read, um, you know, my work, did I drop the ball on something? Do I have all the bases covered? Um, we're wanting to do some modifications of the house. What color are we going to paint the front door? We kind of haven't agreed on that yet. All these things are totally fine. But 
how can I love my neighbor if I'm too busy for them to ever enter into my mind? Do we spend time with that? Do we spend intentional time with that? Um, that kind of sounds weird, like sitting and thinking about people. Like that's something you'd be used to in a romantic context and maybe not really anywhere else. Um, but what could that look like uh, in a renewed way? Can we set aside for a moment our needs, our normal day-to-day life, and carefully consider the other person? This has extraordinary benefits whenever you're talking about the hard people in your life, and I hope you, you know what I mean by that. Like the people who your blood pressure kind of gets up because you know that they're going to make jabs at you, the person who's kind of treated you badly at work, the person who won't quit sharing conspiracy theories with you, whatever it takes. You know, there are hard people in our lives. And if we can take a moment and think of them first with love, this person's created by God, redeemed by Jesus, encouraged by the Spirit. It's really insidious whenever we we don't think of others or we think of them poorly. Our brain is very efficient. And if we allow it to shortcut the thinking process about another person, we can jump to conclusions. We project our own opinions, our wants and desires, our worldview onto other people. And this starts to imply where I think that this joins up and works really nicely um, with the silence practice. So first, just a couple of... uh, bits of my practical application of this. I was trying to think, I need to offer some kind of practical advice, not just this um, philosophical narrative. Um, Well, I want to move on here. Let's wait for that till the end here for just a moment. Reframing this uh, in Sermon on the Mount style then, somewhat like I did with silence. You have heard it said, meditate to hide God's word in your heart. But I tell you, renew the way you think to love others as God does. For the most part, these are not new lessons. The idea that we should love others, love our neighbor, these are common commands. But I think that when we consider these two practices together, they build the foundation for a community that practices what Jesus preached. When we listen to our neighbor, then consider their worth and well-being, we open the door to loving them and the world as God does. These things work together. I, I hope you're kind of starting to see the uh, virtuous cycle here, how these might work together. If we spend time intentionally opening our minds to someone we've overlooked, that we encounter daily, to someone who is hard in our lives, and try to consider them love first instead of bias first, then we will interact with them differently. And we will be more willing to hear their voice the next time that we're speaking with them, encountering them. And whenever we listen and try to hear someone with their own voice and adopt for a moment their perspective, that allows us to love them in a totally new way, to really understand what their needs may be, think about them completely differently. So I promise some practical application here. One, I would propose that we could create a a short self-checklist for ourselves in our daily meditations, which we're all going to practice now, right? Is my first thought about an issue, about another person, charitable? Or am I jumping to my bias? Am I letting my blood pressure get up? Is my first thought charitable? 
Am I attempting to see through the other's eyes? Or am I framing this, good, bad, or otherwise, based on my own preconceived biases? Stepping outside the selfishness for just a moment. Am I building up intentionally rather than cutting down, intentionally or otherwise? So the self-checklist. Another might be to seek out individuals who are willing to tell their stories. So I'm going to start getting bigger and, and grander in scope here as we're closing these thoughts and I've introduced these ideas. We hear caricatures of individuals, of whole demographics, increasingly from all kinds of sources, and increasingly with an eye towards intentionally buying us, biasing us against one another, building up walls uh, against each other, so to speak. But while I, I may or may not feel some uh, affection towards whatever source I'm receiving this uh, caricature from, you can't love that the way you can love a person in front of you. So if there is an area where I'm not the expert and maybe I ought to practice silence, I'm willing to learn more and adopt a new perspective, seek out individuals who are affected by the issue. Seek out an individual who is willing to tell their story in a way that perhaps you haven't considered before. And always apply this to individuals, practicing silence and practice meditating, even the hard ones in your life. There's one uh, source that I like for seeking the voice of others as podcasts, while I'm mowing, while I'm driving, whatever. It's a good opportunity for me to search and hear recommendations and, and seek out voices different from mine. And I just wanted to really briefly share an example of one that I had heard um, just by way of practical application here. Um, so I recently heard a talk from Stephanie Tate. Stephanie is, has now spent the majority of her life suffering from debilitating Lyme disease. So spent most of her life totally undiagnosed, racked with pain, having to cancel things at the last minute. This has been very significant to her. Um, of course, now understands what that is, but she was talking about disability theology. And this is something I had never heard of, not even considered. Um, that's a practice of looking into our doctrines, our teachings, and identifying how they do or don't speak to people who are differently abled. Um, things like healing stories in the Gospels. How can that impact someone, uh, the way that we speak about that, who is sitting and waiting to be healed, or who has heard from the world that they ought to be healed, or they can, and, you know, well-intentioned advice, they should pray harder, or, you know, what they should do. Um, one of the examples um, that she talked about was how meaningful it was to her to realize that she followed a wounded Savior. That whenever Jesus was resurrected, raised from the dead, and came back, his body wasn't healed. It was transformed. He still had the spear wound in his side. He still had the holes near his hands and feet. It didn't have to be healed to be an image bearer for God. And that was a very important insight to her. And this was just something that while I have the best of intentions, it's not a voice that I had heard. I'd never thought of that before. Um, that's meaningful to me, and I hope that it can be to you as well to seek those things out. So we've tried to apply now, how may I love others in my circle? So now let's get grandiose for a moment. There's an image I want to put up here called Earthrise. Um, I'm not going to tell the whole story of this. I kind of wanted to, 
But this is from Apollo 8, one of the first times uh, that we had sent men into space. We are orbiting the moon, you know, doing preliminary research. Um, this occurred in a year where we had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., we had the Vietnam War, the Cold War, increasing racial tensions, and here they are on Christmas, at the end of the year of all times, as far from home as it can get, as removed from context as it can get, and they're looking at the world, and they actually took this picture against their orders. Like, this wasn't what the film was reserved for, but they just had to capture it. And here's a, a very brief snippet of a quote from one of those three astronauts um, recalling that time. Borders that once rendered division vanished. All of humanity appeared joined together on this glorious but fragile sphere. Whenever they had the whole picture, the God's eye view of the world, all of those divisions ceased to matter as much, and it helped them see a completely different perspective on the issues that were, you know, two days before they got there, the biggest topics, the most divisive things in our culture. When we live in community, we are forced to deal with the fact that our perspective, our keyhole, to return to that idea, is not the only perspective. This is the root of just the need for compromise in daily interactions. You know, this is what I want, this is what you want, how can we kind of get along? We don't see things the same way. But somehow, whenever it gets to the more important truths of the world, we feel like we've funneled it down and we should all be aligned. We have to acknowledge that I am not the holder of the truth. We read the same Bible, we follow the same Jesus, but if I consolidate that down to my application, my interpretation, my advice about that is the truth, we have made an idol of ourselves. Let's avoid making idols of ourselves. Let's acknowledge that others in our lives are created by God, redeemed by Jesus, encouraged by the Spirit, and suffer from disorientation and brokenness of sin just like the rest of us do. But that we have to open up that keyhole we're looking through, let's kick down the stinking door. <laughs> Consider the perspectives of the other people. My Bible doesn't tell me about Phil or Greg or Rachel or anyone else. It tells me a lot. But how I learn what their view of the world is and try to increase my perspective is by opening up that space, by listening to them, by starting from a position of love, loving them first so that I can truly understand and so that I can incorporate that, so I can widen my keyhole. Now, if I may get a little bit controversial here for a moment, a little bit provocative, how are we going to handle systemic racial injustice? How are we going to handle child immigrants at our borders? How are we going to handle mass shootings in our environment? How are we going to handle, as a faith community, the increasing acknowledgement of a diversity of gender and sexual identity. Anything controversial in there? This is a place where we follow Jesus in order to widen our perspective. And he is very clear that we apply that by loving our neighbor first. You sit with the woman at the well, you sit at dinner with the people who are undesirable, and with sheep and the goats. 
at the end of the day, what is the measuring stick that's used? What you have done for one of the least of these, you've done for me. What you have not done for the least of these, you have not done for me. This is a community, love-first, focused savior that we follow. This gets hard. This gets hard. But I'll challenge us. Let's be transformed into the image of Christ. Let us be the kingdom of heaven on earth. Let us practice silence by listening and meditation by acknowledging the value of our neighbor so that we may be the loving first, shared suffering disciples of Jesus the world needs.